This is the Money Talks podcast with Michael Campbell. Okay, well, Al, you're on Vancouver Island. You heard me just uh, give you the prep there. How come people are moving to Vancouver Island from smoky, crowded, too much traffic in Vancouver? <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, Victor. Just like for me and my wife, it's usually a lifestyle choice. Um, First of all, you know, secondly, um, hey, if you're coming from uh, Vancouver or the lower mainland, um, you might uh, be able to save a few dollars and uh, and uh, get a really nice house here for a lot less money. Well, um, I know, Al, I moved over there uh, years ago and it was a real change in lifestyle. And I found it was, you know, I started working from home eight years ago and that was pretty easy to do. Yeah, absolutely. You know, nowadays with, uh, with the technology, the way we have it, you know, we I've worked from home here for over 20 years, and, and it wasn't always in the real estate market, so we can do that now. But, uh, you know, Victor, it's just a great place to live. We have all the outdoor activities here, um, you know, name them all. We have like five golf courses in the area that are all, all very good, different levels. We have our tennis, hiking, biking, fishing, boating, sandy beaches, you know, so many reasons to come here. Um, I think you and I discussed this, uh, one of the things you noticed was the uh, lack of traffic relative to the Lower Mainland. Pretty easy to get around here, you know. Well, you've also got just about the nicest year-round climate on Vancouver Island that is available in anywhere. And when I say people are leaving Vancouver to go there, I think when I first got there, I noticed I was surrounded by people from the prairies. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the climate was uh, was a big thing from us coming from the east quite a few years back and and from anywhere else besides the lower mainland, you know, it's a no-brainer. We uh, we have that mild climate all year. I'm going to tell you, Victor, I've golfed and played tennis outside every month of the year, just about every year that I've lived here. So so it's very easy for somebody coming from Ontario or the prairies to uh, to see that and want to enjoy it. But even from the lower mainland, um, you know, I, I worked over there quite a bit, and be a lot of days, you know, I'd take that float plane over or the ferry over and and run into a wall of rain, you know, uh, in the Vancouver area. And, and here, you know, I come back home to uh, you know, a pretty mild day. Um, we have a nice big mountain called Mount Aerosmith right near the Parksville-Qualicum area that kind of gives us a rain shadow. And, um, yeah, it's, it's fantastic. You know, when I moved over there, we looked at a number of houses. I kind of made this back-of-the-envelope guess that if I wanted to buy a house, it would cost X, but if the house was actually going to be on the waterfront, and I don't know, there's like 50 miles of waterfront in that part of the, the world, that was going to be about an extra half a million. Uh, I understand that's changed. Yeah, I think that's changed uh, significantly, Victor, and you're absolutely right. That was, you know, that was the way it was in the past. I can tell you now, you know, for the same, you know, 2,000-foot rancher, um, depending on what waterfront, you know, because we have sandy beaches and rocky beaches and we, you know, in the bluffs, but um, it's going to be at least a million dollars more than what you're going to pay somewhere else. Um, I, I just saw a property go down on a kind of rocky, sandy beach, um, just probably 1,500 square foot, kind of a cottage with a little guest cottage beside it. I think that property would have sold for about $1.5 million just, you know, two or three years ago. Uh, it went for $2.7 million. Wow. So the, the market has been hot. And I also understand that when price, uh, when a place gets listed, like it, it sells within a matter of days. Yeah, absolutely. Um, especially, you know, that May, June time frame. Um, I, you know, 
the average was six to seven days days on market, and many of them were going in two or three days, some of them even one day. Um, I had an experience myself where we listed a property on Friday night at 11 o'clock so that we'd have it ready for the weekend. We had multiple offers Sunday afternoon, um, you know, and, and with a closing price well over list. Okay, we're back. And I have to say, Al, I forgot to tell people how to find you. Uh, Alan Osley, O-S-L-I-E. Alan Osley works with Royal Page in Vancouver. But if you just Google Alan Osley, you'll find out. I mean, we can just barely scratch the surface here in a couple of minutes this morning. Get in touch with him if you want to know more about being over there. Al, when we took the break, I said we're going to come back. We've got a quick two sort of minute take here. What do people need to do given that the property market, you know, th- properties sell so fast? Yeah, Victor, if you, you know, if you want to move over to the area, you've done your homework and you, this is where you want to be. Um, you just have to be prepared. If it's a hot property and, for example, like a 2,000 square foot rancher, um, you know, in a nice area, um, and it's going to be, you asked the question before, it's going to be around a million bucks, maybe a little more, maybe a little less. Um, but if it's if it's a hot property, and those are, uh, you got to be ready to go. You know, have your financing in place. Uh, you know, come with as few subjects as possible because it, it's quite possible. You know, it's going to go quickly. So you know, have your have your relationship with your realtor. Uh, you know, you'll be looking on those automated online um, property searches and uh, and have it narrowed down. Be ready to go. Well, Al, I appreciate that. And just to repeat that, for a million bucks, you get. Say what? I would, you know, in the nicer areas, let's just say the Morningstar area near Morningstar Golf Course or Fairwinds or the Qualicum area. These are the, the you know, kind of hot spots. Um, yeah, around a million bucks, a little bit more for, you know, for the newer builds. Um, but, yeah, nicely renovated 2,000-foot uh, rancher, around a million bucks. But you know what, Victor, you can still get uh, properties like I just saw one 1,600-foot, uh, 1994 built Still looking really nice, you know, updated a bit, not uh, renovated. 650000 just sold uh, last week. Uh, that's in Parksville. And uh, I saw another one that went for around 800000 about the same size, but, you know, with a nice new renovation. So okay. there's still a good affordability in the area relative to Vancouver. We've got Joseph Schachter on the line with us. As I say, our go-to guy for years about what's happening in the energy markets. Joseph, welcome to Money Talks. Wonderful. Glad to be with you, Victor, and also Drew. Wonderful. So, Joseph, as I was framing it earlier this morning, uh, it seems as though lately there's been a real uh, rock and roll in the supply-demand front. Uh, So instead of me asking you the the questions, can you just address that? What do you see happening there? Well, starting on the supply side, uh, going back, um, you know, two months ago, there was concern that – that the OPEC deal couldn't be done because UAE wanted a larger uh, allocation, and they were holding up uh, the deal in August, which was going to bring on 400,000 barrels a day per month for the last five months of the year, or 2 million barrels a day. In the end, they got a deal for uh, UAE to get a, a higher allocation, and also Russia and Saudi Arabia got another allocation. So we're looking at, uh, you know, demand right now, maybe 97, 97 and a half, because it's summer and, and we have the summer driving season. But once we get into September, we're going to see demand fall off 
because we're past the summer driving season, and that usually drops off one and a half to two million barrels. At the same time, we're going to be getting 400,000 barrels a day per month of a new production coming on. We saw this last week because gas prices are a dollar higher U.S. Um, you know, to 3.19 average, uh, up a dollar from a year ago. Um, that the uh, U.S. Uh, White House. Uh, you know, put an arm twist on OPEC to raise more production because they're worried about, uh, you know, these high prices um, at this time. My view is that once we get into September, demand's going to fall off. We're going to have more uh, production coming on. And the question then is going to be what is happening with COVID, um, be it Delta or the new Kappa one that we're hearing about. But we're already seeing two signs in the two largest economies that are consuming energy, the United States and China, that there's a demand drop-off. Last week, for example, the U.S. had a demand drop-off of 1.65 million barrels to 19.5. If you go back to August, mid-August of 2019, you were consuming 22.1, so you can see a big drop-off. Gasoline last week was 9.43, down 345. It was 9.93 in mid-August of 2019. And the big one where there's a big difference is jet fuel, um, it was down 367,000 last week to 1.28 million, and it was 2.02 million in mid-August of 2019. So we're already seeing weakness in the U.S. China is already uh, slowing down. They're importing 9.7 million versus 10.4 per month of uh, oil. And Sinopec has cut their refinery runs, i.e. to create product, by about 10% over the last month. So with weakness in China because of all the COVID and lack of vaccination, all the problems we know about in you know Texas and Florida and other places where there's record number of people in hospital shortage of ICU beds, um, people from Texas that are in hospital are being sent as far as North Dakota uh, because of shortage of beds and ventilators. So we're looking at a pickup here um, in the COVID problem, which means weaker demand at a time when supplies are going to be generous. And my view is we're going to probably see sub sixty dollar oil sometime in September October. And as you know, I've been uh, bearish um, uh, since, uh, you know, uh, the early part of the year um, after, you know, a massive run from March when we got our buy signal and put out a lot of great buy ideas. Many of them went up five, seven to seven times uh, from the lows. We're now cautious. The index is down about 17 percent since then, and WTI is down about 12 percent since the high. And a lot of stocks have been hit up pretty bad. Precision's down about 28 percent. Arc is down 22, Ensign Energy 36. So um, you know, the, you know, Suncor down 23 percent is a is a big move. Um, and so we think that we're going to see much lower prices. I think the index will break 100, close to 121 on Friday, and uh, potentially, depending upon where we see um, the situation with COVID, um, we could see much lower levels on the price of oil and on the stocks. So, so with the supply demand obviously dictating where prices have, have gone and, and, like you just mentioned, come off quite significantly already in the last month or so, do you see that the uh, COVID situation really is is the biggest variable that, that's changing? So as we see COVID cases right now flaring up, uh, especially through different parts of Asia and, and very importantly in China, you know, if that story starts to turn, is, is that what investors really want to be paying the most attention to? Because supply, as you just laid out, is largely set and we know what's going to happen over the coming months. 
But the demand side, because of COVID, is what's really going to change. And that change is going to drive prices of, of oil, which will then likely drive the prices of these uh, companies that you were just mentioning. So are we are we watching just the COVID story to try and, and find a, another buying opportunity here? Or, or in, in your thoughts, it sounds like, are we watching COVID to see if it does get worse, that we still wait and look for a buying opportunity lower? Yeah, I think there's a couple issues here. Um, one, the seasonality where you know, the summer driving season is, you know, pretty high, as I said, 97, 97 and a half. It drops off one and a half to two million worldwide, September, October, November. And then when winter comes, you may go out to 97, 98 million barrels a day. So the seasonality is there. What I think we're going to be watching is commercial stock build. So everybody looks at that commercial crude inventory number on Wednesday mornings from the EIA. And last week, uh, people were looking for a decline of 1.3, and it was only down 0.4. But the reality was that number would have been a positive number, um, except for exports rose 7.59 or 5.3 million on on the week. So you could have had a 4.9 million barrel a day um, or 4.9 million barrel build had it not been for exports rising. The other thing is to think about countries around the world. Australia is now, uh, you know, two-thirds of the country is under lockdown, uh, military curfews. We're seeing problems in, in, you know, Indonesia. We're seeing more problems in Vietnam and other places. So uh, while we're thinking about what's going on here in North America and that we're, re- we're recovering, the reality is the big growth areas for economic development and for consumption are in Asia, um, in Africa, and in South, in South America and other places in the emerging world. The emerging world is the you know probably two thirds of overall demand with China, you know Japan, Korea, and others uh, you know being big parts of that, and that's where the problem with COVID is getting worse. That's why I'm watching it. And if Kappa and some of these other you know mutations are worse, quicker you know in terms of severity, uh, and with low vaccination rates in those countries, if demand drops by a million or two million barrels in the emerging world, that's the that's the wild card for how low oil prices can go. You are from Toronto, but you've rented an RV and you're taking a trip with your family all across Canada. You're currently in Banff, is that right? That is correct. We're having a great time experiencing uh, Western Canada. We're having, uh, we're right now in Banff. Uh, today we're actually headed to Revelstoke, so we're going to be in your wonderful province shortly. Oh, wonderful. Now, you said... Um uh, you're experiencing the Canadian West, but now were you born in Winnipeg? That's right. I'm. I am. You, you called me a Torontonian, and I. It is my adopted home, but my heart really lay, lays in the prairies, and uh, I consider myself more of a Westerner. That's good. That's good because we don't. You know, we're a little suspicious about those Toronto people out here. <laughs> I, I don't blame you. I don't blame you. We're a shady bunch. <laughs> now, but the reason you moved to Toronto was your dad, Jim Muir, and he used to be a head of research of what we used to call James Richardson, and then it became uh, Rich Green or something, right? With when That's they took correct. Over. I grew up uh, actually uh, talking a lot of stocks around the, the dinner table because my dad was a research director at Richardson Green Shield. That's why I was born there. He was actually a Montrealer that got recruited to go to Winnipeg, and then they moved to Toronto in and uh, when I was 17, I kind of became my adopted home in Toronto when they moved the Richardson Green Shields research from Winnipeg to Toronto. But it was in your, your blood to be a macro guy. And, and how did you tell your dad that the first trade that you did was in the dollar index and, and not a stock? 
That's right. So my father, you know, he always loved buying Moose Pasture Mines or whatever, and it was always these little Vancouver promotes. And I had kind of fallen in love with Market Wizards, which was my favorite book, and uh, I had read about these macro traders, and I decided that I wanted to be a futures trader. So he was kind enough to get me an account at the futures, um, you know, at Richardson Green Shields at a few, with a futures broker. And I still remember him telling me, he, uh, he, he introduced me to the broker, and he said to the broker, he said, whatever you do, don't let him lose more than he has in his account. Because <laughs> he understood very well that futures trading is a little bit of a uh, kind of a more risky endeavor. And sure enough, my first trade, I went out and bought the U.S. dollar index in within uh, kind of hours. I think it was locked limit down against me. And uh, I was one of the fortunate few that, that had the first trade go against me because those of us that uh, actually had their first trades go well, we think that we're smart and we actually kind of confuse luck with brains. Well, I, I was basically unlucky right from the start. So I went back to the drawing board and thought about it some more and, and decided to approach this with a little more analysis and, and I kept plugging away at it and uh, it ended up being kind of my career path. Well, I see you, uh, your, your subheading on your website is that uh, all you bring to the party is 25 years of mistakes. <laughs> and uh, as I was saying to our listeners earlier, you must have learned something from all those mistakes that you made. <laughs> That's correct. I always kind of laugh because it always seems to find that I find new ways to make mistakes, though, and that's the oh, nature yeah. of trading is that it's always changing. It's probably why it's the best game out there because, you know, just when you think that you figured it all out, there's a, there's a new wrinkle, a new angle, and, and someone else is, is uh, beating down the door, and you've, you've made a new mistake. And uh, it's, it's probably the most engaging, uh, wonderful game that you can play, and, and I just love it to death. Well, Kevin, as you probably know, I started trading futures before they'd invented color television. <laughs> that's, I think that's true anyway. It's my story. But listen, I have to do a full disclosure thing here. I have been, uh, I'm a huge fan of the work that you do. I've been reading your macro tourist reports for about five years. And when Kevin went behind a paywall, I'm going to say it's, it's about two years ago or was it something like that? That's, that's right, about a year and a half ago. Yeah, I, I immediately became a subscriber, okay? So oh, I, I pay you. to read his research. That's how good I think it is. I mean, I, I get a lot of research for free, but Kevin won't give me a complimentary copy. Hint, hint. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh well, I appreciate your uh, your uh, support, Victor. It's always been great to, uh, you know, chat with you and uh, have you as a subscriber. Okay, so let's get into it. Um, I, I know, Drew, and I've got a few questions, but uh, let, let's lead off with a like a long, awkward one that I'm sure you can make simple. I, I mentioned it earlier about how we're in this era where it used to be all about the central banks. Mike Campbell and I have used that term I don't know how many times over the last 10 years, but it seems to me that the baton is being passed to the governments. So we're going to go from monetary policy, sort of shaping everything, to fiscal policy. That's government spending. What's your view on that? So I completely agree. You know, there was that old saying that was made famous by Marty Zweig, and it was, don't fight the Fed. And I've kind of adopted it now to say, don't fight the fiscal. And we were probably headed in this direction anyways, but COVID uh, accelerated the process and has shifted us from a period of what we called monetary dominance, meaning that all of the kind of fine-tuning of the economy was made through monetary policy to one of fiscal dominance. And I'll just kind of illustrate what I mean about that. Let's think about ever since Volcker came and broke the back of inflation in the early 80s, we've, uh, you know, uh, 
approached every single economic problem by the Fed either lowering or raising rates, meaning that when the when the economy was running too hot, the Fed raised rates and slowed it down. When the economy was running too slow, the Fed lowered rates to speed it up. And this has been something that's been happening for the past 40 years. Then in the great financial crisis in 2008, we approached a, a point where we couldn't uh, influence the economy anymore through monetary policy, through conventional monetary policy, because we got to the point where we lowered rates to zero, and people just didn't want to borrow anymore during that period. So what the Fed did is they said, well, if the Fed, people aren't going to do that, we're going to do unconventional monetary policy. And so they went about doing quantitative easing and uh, the Operation Twist, which was trying to influence the yield curve. And at first, everyone was very excited about this. They thought that this was going to create all sorts of inflation. There was this very famous uh, open uh, op-ed that was written in the uh, Wall Street Journal that was signed by you know 80 different prominent economists and uh, strategists about how this was going to create runaway inflation. And much to everyone's surprise, it didn't. There was very little inflation following the great financial crisis, and quantitative easing did not cause this uh, runaway inflation like everyone thought. And we've kind of gone, and many economists have been forced to go back and look and wonder why this was the case. And what a lot of them have come to the conclusion is that quantitative easing and all of these monetary means have become ineffective. And the easiest way to think about this is when the Fed goes and buys bonds, the thinking is that the Fed buys bonds, it pushes money into the system, and then all of a sudden the banks have that money and they do more loans. Well, the reality is that if you think about it, if you're Jamie Dimon at J.P. Morgan and the Fed comes and buys a billion dollars of bonds off of you in a quantitative easing uh, operation, well, you have a billion dollars more in your balance sheet, but that doesn't mean that you're necessarily going to go out and make a billion dollars more of loans. The reality is that what you decide in terms of your criteria for deciding about whether you're going to create more loans is the, the creditworthiness of the, of the borrower, your balance sheet, the demand from the borrower. And so one of the things that we've realized is that commercial banks are not what they're known as reserve constraint. They're balance sheet constraint. So when they go do a quantitative easing operation, it doesn't actually do anything to the real economy. Because what happens is J.P. Morgan just takes that money and they just deposit it back at the Federal Reserve. So now go back to my first comment about how we've shifted from monetary dominance to fiscal dominance. We, we tried this in the great financial crisis to do monetary policy, but it didn't work. We had one of the weakest kind of uh, uh, recoveries in the history of all of the recoveries. Then all of a sudden COVID hits. And COVID hits, and this is a disaster, and, and uh, you know, Victor, you don't need me to remind you how bearish everybody was in that March of 2020, and they thought this was going to create the end of the world. And what happened was the government stepped up, and they spent, and they did fiscal policy. And I remember at the time saying to people, I said, listen, this government can fill the hole more than everyone believes. And even though I was very bullish at the time, and I thought that from both an economic and a market perspective that the market was too pessimistic and that the government could fill a hole, I never imagined that they would be able to fill the hole as well as they have. And it just goes to show you the power of fiscal policy. 
And what this is, this has changed. This has changed the way we think about economies. This is the way we change the thought about markets. And if we think about what this should mean for our portfolios, if we have a shift in attitude in terms of governments willing to spend, we are going to basically enter into an era where the governments will spend and create inflation. And it's kind of ironic that at the point where people think that the, there's no way that we can create inflation, meaning if you think back to great financial crisis, there's, there's kind of a belief that there was no way that the quanti, after quantitative easing failed, everyone gave up on inflation and they thought there's absolutely no way we can create inflation. This is just – look at this. We did all this printing and yet we didn't create inflation. It's at this point that we're actually going to kind of hit this massive move where we're going to go from a period of disinflation to a period of inflation. And it's going to be driven by the government's willingness to spend and create fiscal deficits. Now, let's, let's, let's actually underline that. But, uh, Kevin, you know, we do need to take a commercial break, and this is probably a good point. Just, uh, but if you, why don't you just repeat that last sentence about inflation and why it's going to happen? Inflation will happen because we've entered into a new era of fiscal dominance and governments will spend money into creation. Kevin Muir on the line with us. That's Kevin Muir from themacrotourist.com. We've actually got a, an article that Kevin's given us and that's on the Money Talks, Mike's moneytalks.ca website. Uh, you can also check out his website to see everything that he's doing. We were just talking about how inflation is coming and, and Kevin, a huge part of the inflation story is energy. And you've also got a, a view on, on where our energy market is and, and where you think it's going. Uh, let's, let's lead in with that and uh, hear your, your point of view on our energy markets. Sure. So one of the things that I love to say is don't worry about what should be done in your investing. Worry about what will be done. So when I talk about all of energy in the next little while, I just want you to put aside your politics. Don't worry about that because you can have all the politics you want about you know what you believe about global warming or pollution, and we can all agree that pollution is bad, but it's not going to help you with your investing. So from all of this, it's just for purely from an investment point of view. So if we think about what the investment community is trying to accomplish with energy is they are instituting ESG, which is, in essence, starving energy companies of capital in an attempt to make it so it's more difficult for them to produce more energy. And if, if we think about this, what the effects of this, of this will have on the actual commodity itself, it becomes pretty clear to me that if you just limit the supply of something, Without changing the demand side of the equation, all you're going to do is end up with higher prices. Uh, and I think one of the things that I just kind of highlighted in one of my articles that's just absolutely insane to put this in perspective, the International Energy Association just released their kind of blueprint for the next 30 years. And in doing so, they said there should be no new net investments after 2021. So what this means is that there will be no more exploring for, you know, oil and gas from the companies that have signed on to this, uh, that are part of the IEA. And if, if we kind of try to imagine how much oil and gas is needed to be replaced 
and how quickly they are cutting supply without having an alternative ready. It seems pretty clear to me that we're going to have a spike in the meantime. And in fact, I, I almost believe that they want that spike in the meantime because they want to make it more expensive for consumers to use oil. Now, I think these policies are absolutely absurd. I think it's like uh, drug dealing. And if you think about drugs and the problems with society, if you go and limit the number of drug dealers, it doesn't really stop the demand side of the equation. The better you know, solution is if you're truly concerned about drug use in your society, it's to, to actually reduce the demand side of it. So for me, I would be more inclined to say, well, if we're worried about pollution and we're worried about this, we should go and actually attack the demand side. Yet what we're doing is we're attacking the supply side because it's politically easier to go and say these bad, big, bad oil companies look at all the terrible things they're doing. But meanwhile, I'm still going to go to to Mexico or the Caribbean or to Hawaii on my flights all the time. I don't want to change my behavior. So what I think is going to happen is that we're going to have the same demand for energy use. There's not going to be no change on it that side. Yet what we're going to see is much less supply. And what's going to happen is I think that we're setting ourselves up for a massive energy spike in the coming years. And the other thing that one of the reasons that I believe this is happening is that we also have China using more and more energy. And yes, they are trying to use more electricity. They are trying to to, uh, diversify their energy use. But when you go look at various countries as they have developed throughout the decades, the perfect example is Japan and Korea. Japan, after World War II, as they became more and more wealthy, their energy use per person, it went up slowly for a little while, and then they hit a certain level of affluence, and it exploded higher. It's like a hockey stick, you know, that's something us Canadians can understand. There's the bottom, the blade, and then it just takes off in terms of energy use per capita. Then we think about, we go look at Korea in, I think it was the 70s and 80s, same deal. There's a slow, slow, slow rise, and then all of a sudden they hit a certain level of affluence, and it was exploding their use per capita. Well, China, I believe, is just at the base of the hockey stick and is about to explode higher as well. And I think that's part of the equation that when all these people sit around looking at oil, going, why is oil doing so well? You know, our economies are closed. Why why is oil rallying? They don't realize that China is stockpiling tons and tons of oil. Now, so, the, so if we think about this, we have a, a very – kind of unique situation as well in the futures market. And this is something that uh, Victor and Drew, you guys will understand and appreciate all the more. We have the front months of the crude oil market trading at a higher price than the back months. If you go look at, let's just say, next month's delivery of crude oil is $68, but I can go buy $68 a barrel, but I can go out and buy December 2025 contracts for like $55. And I think this is absolutely absurd. I think the market is getting this completely wrong. I suspect that by the time that this, uh, once it gets realized, not only will those far-dated contracts trade not at a discount, I believe that they will be at a massive premium. And I think that this is a unique opportunity for people to get, uh, you know, for those commodity players. I think that, like for me, I own the far-dated futures contracts. And then for those that aren't as um, 
comfortable with futures, one of the things you can do is you can go out and you can buy long-dated uh, uh, kind of Options energy companies with long-dated assets. Uh, Ozzy, you might have heard we were talking earlier with Alan Osley, a real estate agent over on Vancouver Island, and we were talking about you know why people are moving to the island, why prices are going up. And it was reminding me that, I mean, I think it's been a few years now when I listen to you, kind of the, the background argument that you give in support of real estate and why real estate prices are rising is what you've famously called the underreported inflation that is going on around the world. Don't let me steal your thunder. You go ahead. You talk about it. <laughs> well, it's kind of interesting. As you know, I was the president of Royal Page. We used to have some 10,000 employees. I was the chairman of Blockbrothers. And I had the opportunity to always have the money to hire the best advice possible. You may remember guys like Henry Kaufman, the guru of gurus. We paid yeah. him a fortune to forecast inflation and interest rates. One thing sitting on the paying side to all the economists was that they looked at the same circumstances and they never agreed. One saw interest rates much higher, one much lower. Inflation was always bandied about. So I started to think, what the heck are they talking about when they say inflation? Because, Victor, we have core inflation, headline inflation, creeping inflation, walking, galloping, hyperinflation, asset price inflation, wage and demand pulls. My God, you go blind, you know. What does core inflation mean? It's like going to the doctor. Your heart, the core is okay, but you've got these black things hanging down out of your belly, but the core is all right, right? <laughs> to me, that's all ridiculous. I call it. Everything is more expensive kind of inflation. So I wrote my book, Forget About Location, Location, in 1998, and I said it was far more important to understand concepts of timing, trend, and whether we are going to have price inflation. Nothing else really mattered. So you know, I bought a house in 1968 for 13000 By 1998, it was 278000 I said, if you extrapolate what the increase was from that time to 1998 and look forward for the next 30 years, every house in Vancouver is going to be worth 6 or $7 million. Well, we had $4 million on the west side now. wasn't so far-fetched. And all I look at is the increase of the money supply. And that comes from Milton Friedman, who said inflation is primarily a monetary phenomena. That's it. So I thought, well, if that's the case, every time I make a speech, I made some 52 major conferences in the last 25 years. And every time I say that, people say, well, commodity prices are down. But this is down. It's going to be deflation. We're going to have bread lines. And then I realized there are two entirely different things. Inflation in hard assets is entirely a monetary issue, depending on how much money is available, how cheap that money is, and how easy it is to get. That's number one. At the same time, Collapsing commodity prices could be at the same time, but that's an economic issue. If China buys fewer cars and boats or, or natural resources, we can have actually deflation at the same time as we have inflation and hard assets. And that, to me, is the key. If you came to my slideshows in the last few years, from 2015 to 2018, we had a 35% increase in real estate prices. At the same time, an outright collapse in, um, in natural resource uh, stocks, for instance. So commodities were way down. So the point to me is what it costs more for the consumer. I mean, my house went from 13,278,000. to Now that same house is 1.3 million. Ice cream was 10 cents. Now it's $6. The filet mignon was $1.30. Now it's 50. People saying, well, we never have <laughs> runaway inflation. To my mind, it is runaway inflation only over a long period of time. So the point is what's going to happen now, right? 
so it's all fine to say, is it real? Look around the world. This is not a Vancouver phenomenon. Budapest is up 16%. 150 cities that were studied, studied on average are up over 7%. The top 20% are 10% and more. So the moneyed elite is pounding into real estate from Athens to London, from Manila to Toronto, and they certainly are discovering Canada. So with Canada, with the the prices continuing to rise, we're seeing a a shift. We've got more millennials in the market now than boomers for for maybe the first time ever. That shift is likely going to continue. What do you you see the millennials looking for? Is it a different type of market? Is it a different price point? Uh, What are millennials looking for in the the real estate market? Well, they're they're worried to be left behind. Millennials also, you have to understand today, you get a $400,000 mortgage in your monthly payment at 1.4% mortgage over 30 years. The payment is only under $1,400. That same mortgage, had you taken it out in 1990, the payment would have been 4500 There you probably have the answer about cheap money, low interest rates, and all that coming together. But they rush, they go into it, they're in a multiple offer situation, but there comes price fatigue. That's where we are now. You can see it the same in, in, the, in stocks. I mean, you know when you look at these crazy stock gyrations, what happens now, you might have one guy has created this environment where everybody follows the leader. And if you have a million followers and, and say buy, buy this stock, $50 million come into the market and drive prices higher. Okay, so the millennials are right there. They wanna, they're interested in that, that, um, <laughs> that, that rise in value. But there comes a point in all increases in inflation where there is an inflection point. We are there right now. If you look at most markets in British Columbia, and your listeners can just go to the Real Estate Association of BC, BCREA, the CBC Northern sales are down 7%, Shilabak is down 11 Kootenays are down 17%, Interior 22 Victoria is down 16 and even Vancouver Island, across the board, as the Real Estate Board's report, are down 18% in sales. Prices are still way up, but you can see we're slowing. In Vancouver, we're slowing in the single-family home market. We have a sharp decline, but there's a shift into condos, so condos do a little bit better. I think the inflection point means that we're going to take a breather. Long-term, I see much higher prices again, just like I had for the rest, for all of my life, for 20 years. I see much higher prices again, but right now, I think the shift will continue to condo. There won't be any multiple offers. And even if you go to Kamloops, sales uh, overall are down 9% and single-family home sales are down 17%. Our prices are still much higher. We like Kamloops. I mean, five golf courses, great ski resort and so on. But if you go to Edmonton, the market is sort of about the same as it was in July 2020, but it's about 19% from June. Calgary counter trends is a 26% increase. So whatever customers do, whatever listeners do, they should look at their local markets, get a quality local realtor like the fellow you mentioned on Vancouver Island. You need somebody that lives and breathes and sleeps local real estate. I've been talking on this radio show about Kimberley. Well, I just bought a condominium just under a 1,000 square feet, fully furnished, beautiful building. Building is 10 years old, right by the ski hill for $270,000. So clearly price makes a big difference, but it's, it's, a, it's far away. But the point is... There are some real deals still out there if you just look for them. So as you're saying, an inflection point, you think the market's been like prices have been jumping higher and maybe that's leveling off here. Is that lack of product or lack of demand or a little of both? <clears throat> it's lack of demand. Sales are coming off. Like every, every month in my OzBuzz uh, newsletter, 
I look at the last four years. So the last four years of July, we're still comparing very well against it. But you can see when sales slow down, usually more product comes on, then, then owners think, oh, hey, gee, maybe I'm missing the boat. They're putting up their properties, then they don't sell. It's sort of an inflection point. I would agree with you, Realtor, that September usually is always a little increase. But I think we're taking a breather. I really do. Almost wherever I go, Realtors say the multiple offers are dead. It might be somebody that's trying to, to create the multiple offers by underlisting. But generally speaking, nobody is running around making, uh, making crazy bits. All right. So, Oz, uh, we've just got, uh, let's say, two minutes left here before we got to take a break and, you know, and say thanks, Oz. It's been great, great talking to you. Uh, what, what's maybe the, the, the thing in the real estate market right now that is really front and center as far as you're concerned, the thing that you're really paying attention to? Well, interest rates. If interest rates go up, we, we will have problems. Uh, there's no question about it. And again, you look at 100 economists and 50% say they go up and 50% go down. But if there is a chance for rates to go higher, and if they do, even by 2%, it will make a difference. Markets, to a large extent, are also psychological, right? Okay. So initially, when rates rise, everybody runs in uh, to, to take advantage. But then we have the real slowdown after. If, if rates stay this way, we will probably have a huge increase again next year and so on. Because to me, the money in circulation, the cash, is now going directly to the people. You see, before, you're... Ken Muir was totally correct when he says the money went into the big corporations. They used the money to buy their own stocks. They didn't create anything. But now we're paying 2,000 months directly to the public, and they're out there buying things, doing things with whatever. And all of the people that are being subsidized are also out there parting of the, of the economy. That will all, that money in circulation, will create high inflation, in my view. But I'm talking about hard asset inflation. Paintings are up. You know, 2,000% to sell at $100 million. Baseball cards are $700,000. You look at these ridiculous things. They're only available because of the availability of money and the price of money. We've been talking with Ozzy Jurek. The website is ozbuzz.ca. Oz, uh, thanks for taking the time with us on a Saturday morning. Listen, um, I have to give a plug right now. And this is, it's out front. I'm with you. Uh, it's a plug. I'm on Vancouver Island uh, in the Oceanside area once a year. The Special Olympics people over there put on a golf tournament. That is the one and only fundraising thing that they do all year. We've got about 40 special needs kids in the Oceanside area. Oceanside's basically Bowser down to Nanus, includes Qualicum and Parksville. Um, you can go on the website. S-O-B-C, like Special Olympics B-C, S-O-B-C, Oceanside.ca. You can find out all about the golf event. You can sign up to play golf. You can sign up to, to sponsor a hole or something like that, or you can just donate some money. So, <clears throat> um, as I say, that's an out-and-out plug. As you know, you've been listening for years. Mike and I are both just huge fans and supporters of Special Olympics in British Columbia, for me in particular, over on the island. So please, if you've got any interest in playing golf with us to help raise money for the special needs kids over there, check that out. Um, the music has been about the 50-some year anniversary of Woodstock. There's another really important 50-year anniversary coming up tomorrow. And 50 years ago tomorrow, President Richard Nixon 
closed the gold window in the United States. It was the biggest change in monetary policy in the United States since the Second World War. I just finished reading a great book about it called Three Days at Camp David, when Nixon and his, his inside circle put their heads together and said, we need to do this, We've, they've got some big problems, and this is how we're going to address it. And one of the things they did was, if a country like France or Germany showed up with a whole you know truckload of paper dollars and knocking on the Federal Reserve, door in exchange and, and wanted gold, they suddenly said, no, not anymore. You're not getting the gold. You know, the paper's the paper and that's it. We're keeping the gold. So gold, actually, this is a, a great segue into something that happened just this past week. Drew and I'll go, go over this. This was also the lead thing that I wrote about in my trading desk notes, victoradair.ca. There's a plug for me. Um, Friday of last week, the gold market dropped because the U.S. dollar went up, because the employment report that we had in the United States showed employment much stronger than what the market had been expecting. But the really interesting thing happened last Sunday afternoon when the Far East markets opened. I say Sunday afternoon, our time out here in North America. The gold market fell about, I think it was $90 an ounce, something like, like that, Drew, like in a heartbeat. So why did that happen? What do you think? Well, my inside scoop to that was uh, my email from from you, your, your trading desk notes. Uh, <laughs> okay. I always touched on that right away. But as, as you just said in there, I mean, it just looked very apparent that it was somebody that was forced to liquidate in an incredibly thin market. And, and that's where we've seen it before in, in other commodity markets and anything in the future space. When we open and the market doesn't have, you know, a full trading desk of, of people willing to support the bids and offers that are there, we see some incredibly sharp movements. And, and, and that seemed to be what it was. It was a very sharp drop. A lot of it was made back within the next hour. Um, and then a lot of it uh, carried on. We actually finished the week higher by the end of the week. But, you know, if, if you're not aware of, of those movements, it can, can really catch you off guard because it was extreme. It, and the price of silver, which even more thinly traded at that, that, at that time of the day, was down about two bucks an ounce. I mean, talk about getting clobbered. Oh, it's been too much fun here uh, in the studio today. But uh, I, just as, as I said, Drew and I worked together for 10 years. And as a father, working with my son, that was just a wonderful experience for me. Um, and then we both left the brokerage business, as I said. And when I started in the mining business, like I was just the, like the lowest form of life in the camp up in the bush, you know, washing dishes and cleaning toilets and stuff like that. You got to walk out of the brokerage business and become the chief executive officer of a company. I mean, the, the, how did you do that? <laughs> well, it, it is. I mean, it is and it was and, and still is a great opportunity and, and part of why I, I made that switch. I mean, Again, you just heard Kevin Muir talk about where he thinks energy prices are going higher for the next while. Ozzy talking about real estate prices going higher for the next while. It's my view that we're really just in the start of what's going to be a terrific market for the precious metals. And I wanted to have a lot more exposure to that. So the opportunity came up to come over to Stallion Gold. Uh, we're a junior exploration company, our main property in Idaho. We've got a giant property there. It's 695 mining claims. It's 5,644 hectares. You might be able to, to get the scope of how big that is because of, of some of the wildfires that are, are nearing that sort of size. But this property is right next to Perpetua Resources. They've got 6 million ounces of gold in the ground. We've got some historical drilling that was done 25, 30 years ago. So we know that there's gold there. 
we're just going to go back in with new mining techniques, some technology, some drilling, and really figure out how much of a resource there could possibly be there and, and the potential to have the leverage to that goal, to that resource is, is really what this story is all about. And, you know, being able to advance a project like this is, is all about the people. So we've got Bill Breen is our, our president and VP of exploration. He's down in Idaho. He's been in Idaho for 42 years. He staked this property 10 years ago. He knows it inside and out and has really been able to hit the ground running for us, which has been a huge help in really allowing us to bring this property along. Um, and, and the big thing here is, again, coming back to the opportunity that you have, it seems so often people are, you know, buying gold just to bury it back in the ground again, and, and you're paying to do that. So we're giving people the opportunity to be buying gold at a fraction of the cost. Obviously, there's risk in how much gold is there, is it economic, that sort of thing. That's the risk-reward opportunity that comes with any sort of investment. But we are really working hard to take some of that risk out of this equation and hopefully be able to find a resource that we think is very significant and, and will do very well for the stakeholders, uh, not only in the in the state of Idaho, in the country of the U.S., but uh, all of our shareholders as well. And it, we're just very excited about the opportunity. Well, good luck with that. Stallion Gold and the uh, stock symbol is STUD, S-T-U-D. Uh, Mike Campbell will be back next week. Subscribe to the Money Talks with Michael Campbell podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or anywhere you get your on-demand audio for the complete show, daily podcasts, and more.